Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of What You Didn't Know About the Bible. Today, I'm going to be uh, trying to answer a question that perhaps some of you have never really asked. Um, one of the biggest challenges I think we have as 21st century American Gentiles <laughs> reading the New Testament, which is a first century Eastern Jewish work, is we just don't fully appreciate, you might say, the context of both uh, John the Baptizer, Jesus, the disciples, Paul, because that world is so foreign to us, but also we we don't um, really have a robust, a full understanding of Second Temple Judaism, the religion of Jesus, and why it is that he did some of the things he did, and why John the Baptizer is so important for the story. In other words, and and this is uh, th- this is the title of our pad- podcast, uh, this episode. Uh, John was not a Baptist, and Jesus was not a Christian. Now, I know we call him John the Baptist, but I, I, I'm, I'm afraid that language, especially for people like me, because I come from a Baptist tradition. And I remember growing up in church, hearing about John the Baptist, and just assuming that meant he was, you know, one of us. But John was not a Christian. John was not a Baptist, like we understand them. Um, yes, he he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but even he had, you might say, a wrong idea about what that would mean. I mean, when he's in prison, he sends his disciples to Jesus and basically says, are you the coming one or do we look for someone else? In other words, Jesus's life, the decisions Jesus was making, what he was teaching, how he was living— was very different, the different kind of Messiah than what John anticipated. So when we think about John and what he was doing and then Jesus, um, we might misread, for example, the baptism of John, and we might misunderstand the intentions and the teaching of Jesus. For example, when you see in the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, all three feature John, and I like to call him the baptizer, uh, so we get away from that worn-out title of a Christian tradition, the Baptist. And by the way, that's pretty uh, common, and it's typical in Mark's gospel. Mark calls him the baptizer. It's an articular participle. But anyway, when John comes baptizing, let me tell you what he wasn't doing. He was not offering a Christian baptism. He was not, you know, people were not going into the river, and he wasn't lifting his hand and say, by the authority of me, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. Or, you know, and he didn't grab them and plunge them under the water like they were being buried in a watery grave, and he didn't bring them up. That is not the kind of baptism that John was offering. Instead, I mean, obviously, John didn't know about the crucifixion of Jesus. He didn't anticipate that Jesus would be led to a cross and really didn't anticipate, of course, the resurrection. So what kind of baptism was John offering if it wasn't a Christian baptism? Well, 
It was a Jewish baptism. You go, what? Jews baptized? Yeah, they did. Maybe they didn't use that word. And by the way, our, our English word baptism comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which means to immerse, to dip, to plunge, basically to soak somebody or something in water. So the Jews did practice immersion. They practiced, to our eye, it would look like baptism. And why did they do it? Well, there are two kinds of Jewish baptism. One was far more commonly practiced in Jesus' day than the other. And that is, in Jesus' day, Jews baptized themselves to maintain purity. Because according to the law of God, if you come in contact with an unclean thing, like an unclean, you know, a dead body or an unclean animal or also, I mean, there are all kinds of ways that we would call natural that renders you impure, unclean. If a woman gives birth to a child, nocturnal emission, uh, sexual relations between husband and wife, all of that, although those, there's nothing sinful or immoral about, the, immoral about those things, it's still, according to the law of God, made you unclean. And what that meant is that you could not then come into the company of Jews who were maintaining holiness through purity. You couldn't go to the temple. You couldn't go to the synagogue. You couldn't worship God until you went through ritual purity. Now, although those kinds of purifications or those kind of immersions were required of all Jews, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees taught that there were certain ritual uh, baptisms that, that were basically only practiced by the priest. God said, now you priest, you've got to do something more. When you come to my table, because the food that was brought to the temple that was sacrificed is God's food, right? But the Jews got to eat, or the priests rather, got to eat at God's table. They took, you might say, God's leftovers <laughs> from the animal sacrifice or the or the wave offerings, the the, the um, grain offerings, the showbread. So they would come to God's table, and God said, basically, you've got to wash your hands before you eat at my table, go through ritual purity. And scholars debate on why the Pharisees adopted that as a practice for themselves, because the Pharisees were not priests. And I don't go into why, but it, it looks like the priestly practice of washing their hands uh, the, the Pharisees begin to adopt for themselves and encourage others to follow the same practice. As a matter of fact, if you go to Israel and you go to archaeological sites like Magdala, you'll see these baptismal pools. They're called mikvot. You can see them where they would. There were steps leading down into a pool, and they're the, the, we're talking about the size of a bathtub, a little bigger than that. And then steps leading out with a wall dividing. And so impure Jews, unclean Jews, would step into the water, dunk themselves, and come back out. And that was their baptism. The other kind of baptism that wasn't as common, and scholars debate whether or not it really was practiced in Jesus' day, and that is when a Gentile would convert to Judaism, one of the things they would be required to do is to be baptized, to be immersed as an act of moving from a pagan world into the world of the covenant. 
They also had to make a, a sacrifice at the temple, and they had other things that were required to do. Now, we don't know if that was a common practice in Jesus's day, but we do know immersion, washing even the hands, is, was common because it shows up in the Gospels in several places. So when John shows up in the desert and the biblical writers say of him, you know, the gospel writers say, well, he's the, the voice, the herald in Isaiah 40 that would cry in the wilderness to prepare Israel for the advent of God's visitation to come out of exile and to enjoy the blessing of the covenant again. And the gospel writers identify this voice, this Elijah who was going to come, Jesus identifies him, as John. So when John comes into the desert and he begins to preach, what, to rocks? <laughs> He's in the desert. He's at the river. He begins to preach. And the shocking part is that all these people show up. And John is baptizing them. So it kind of looks like Jewish baptism, Jewish immersion. And yet it's different in that Jewish immersion was self baptizing, but John is baptizing these Jews who are coming to him. But he even adds another element. They're not coming to him to be baptized so that they're who are, you know, once the, to try to achieve ceremonial cleanness, purity. No, the gospel writers say that John was preaching a baptism of repentance. That he was saying, you need to get ready because God's coming. Just like Elijah, God's coming. And uh, you that day of divine visitation will be a day of reward for the righteous, but boy, it'll be a day of judgment for the wicked. Now, what's interesting about John's message is, is that any Jew knew that the place where you go to confess your sin and to be forgiven of your sin was the temple. God set it up that way. You go to the temple. You offer the proper sacrifice as an act of confession. Jesus even talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. When you go to the temple and you're getting ready to offer your sacrifice and you remember you have a, a, a problem with your brother, leave your sacrifice there, your gift, and go. So... What's strange about John's ministry, you might say, is twofold. First, he's not offering the typical Jewish act of immersion because he is doing the baptizing. And again, nowhere in the New Testament is that right described or even the Christian practice of baptism. Nowhere is it described how they did it. So more than likely, John is not you know, dunking them necessarily like a Christian baptism, it could very well be that he's pouring water on their head. But what's interesting is that the wrinkle in it is not only that he's conducting a kind of a Jewish baptism, but it's different in that he's the one baptizing them. But secondly, he's, he's, he sees this sign. He's calling them to be baptized because that's the only way they're going to get the forgiveness of their sin. Even though the temple's in full operation in Jerusalem, he acts like, and this you might say this is an inference, and of course the priests and the scribes thought so too. Like they came out to him and say in John 1, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, And it was a critique of the temple. 
that John was convinced was corrupt in a variety of ways, and John's not the only one. Jesus had the same critique of the temple, which is why he cleared it later. So these people, these Jews, for some reason, this is what's really puzzling. We don't know why, except they took John as that prophet, as Elijah, and they flocked to him. They, everyone except the religious leaders. They came to John confessing their sin, looking for forgiveness, being baptized by him as an act of preparing for the day of God's visitation, which in Jewish eschatology could mean all kinds of things, but in a messianic hope, it meant when the Messiah comes, when the king comes, it'll be a day of punishing the wicked who oppose God and rewarding the righteous. So we call him John the Baptist, but he was not a Christian. He didn't believe in the death of Jesus as an atoning sacrifice. He didn't even know that was going to happen, much less believe in the resurrection. And again, he was a little confused because Jesus, you know, John comes preaching, you know, uh, fire and damnation. You, you better get right or you're going to be in trouble. The ax is already laid at the root, you know, of the tree. The harvest is coming, and it's not going to be a good day. You better get ready, Israel. And when Jesus comes along, you know, John fasted. So did his disciples. This is brought up in the Gospels as well. Where John is an ascetic, you know, he's, he lives in the desert, eats locusts, dresses like Elijah. I mean, you talk about an ascetic lifestyle. And here comes Jesus who preaches mercy and preaches love for your enemy. He will go to the table of sinners and not call them necessarily to, you know, get baptized. He, he just basically says, you know, when he goes to the sinner's table, he said, yeah, they're sick, but they need someone to help them. In other words, this is what was, you know, the the critique of Jesus was, you know, John is has a demon because he acts so strange. He's denying the world. And Jesus is a party animal. He's a drunkard and, you know, and a wine-bibber. Because Jesus introduced the kingdom coming to earth in ways that not even John the baptizer could recognize I mean, when you're preaching a message of judgment and here comes the one that you think is the voice of God, the one you're preparing the way for, and he starts talking about, you know, loving your enemies and showing mercy and it's no wonder who's John's dying in prison, right? And he goes, uh oh, he had doubts. Is Jesus the right one or not? He certainly wasn't the kind of Messiah John expected. I mean, John expected Jesus to show up and preach the same message, you know, of judgment and hell and damnation. And by the way, Jesus does have an edge to his message. He does warn the Sermon on the Mount about entering the Gehenna, the fire of Gehenna, which we translate as hell. I mean, Jesus' message is not all, you know, butterflies and roses, but yet the way he tried to call people to repentance by going to their table and eating rather than 
setting up shop in the desert and expect people to come to him was a completely different approach. So John was not a Baptist. Jesus was not a Christian. And I think that shows up in several ways. Of course, yes, he was circumcised. His parents took him and redeemed him according to the law. You know, the child that opens the womb, you have to go to the temple and buy him back from the Lord. And they're supposed to bring a lamb. But if you were a poor Jewish couple, then God allowed you to bring a, you know, turtle doves to basically redeem that firstborn back. And you see that story in Luke. They, sure enough, on the eighth day, Jesus circumcised. Later, after the days of purification for Mary, they take Jesus to the temple to buy him back from the Lord. And, uh, you know, he was brought up to worship the God of Israel, go to synagogue, hear the scribes and the rabbis teach. He participated in the holy days, the festivals, the feast and the fast as well that God set up for Israel, those three pilgrimage feasts and the three non-pilgrimage festivals, one was a fast, the Day of Atonement. So Jesus attended the temple. I mean, Jesus was a Jew in every sense of the word. Therefore, at times, I think we miss the significance of what he taught uh, especially it shows up in the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, recently, we during this summer, we uh, on Wednesday nights, I, I took some people through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And at the end of our study, um, a, a man asked a question, no, wait a minute, if Jesus is emphasizing obeying the law, you have, to, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet Paul teaches the works of the law don't matter. What's going on here? In other words, and, and by the way, we've talked about this before in this podcast, that even scholars pit Jesus against Paul. And I, we think it's, uh, you know, I've had a couple of guests on to talk about this. I mean, we think it's not only a misreading of Paul, but it's a, it's a misreading of Jesus. But part of that misreading of Jesus is this. We want him to sound like a Christian. We want him to sound like someone who says, you know, the law is not really that important. Uh, we don't, you know, don't follow the law. We see Jesus as an iconoclast, someone who comes almost as a lawbreaker, and by the way, his enemies, the Pharisees, the scribes, they uh, characterized him that way. They came after him because he was not keeping their interpretations of the law. And for them, if you don't read the law like they do, and they're the experts, in other words, you don't interpret it like we do, then you're breaking the law. And of course, that's the bone of contention between Jesus and these teachers of the law. He did not interpret it like they did. And the whole Sermon on the Mount is Jesus basically coming to Israel and saying, here's what God meant by the law. And it's crucial because if you don't get the law right, you don't get the covenant right. And if you don't get the covenant right, then you don't get the blessing of God. 
So when Jesus says things like, he who sets aside the least of the commandments is least in the kingdom, because you know there are more than 10 commandments in the Old Testament. Actually, there are 613. And in Jesus' day, the rabbis debated which laws are more important than the others. And the reason is because there are certain laws, if you violate them, the penalty or the, the what you're required to do to make recompense, right, for sacrifices, some laws you break, it requires more of you to make restitution with God than others. So they debated, you know, which which are the weightier matters of the law? Which are the which are the commandments that are more important? And, you know, obviously the top 10 are really important, the 10 commandments. But when you come to 613, some of those commandments seem really ridiculous to us as Gentiles. Uh, you know, for example, certain dietary regulations, we none of us know Gentile Christian. Well, there are some who try, but they don't even keep it successfully. And so but the average Gentile Christian today, we look at those laws and they, that's the least of the commandments. I'm, we're not going to keep those. And yet Jesus says, anybody who sets the least of the commandments aside is least in the kingdom. And you go, oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. If I eat catfish and I eat shrimp and I like my steak medium well, or, or, or medium rare rather, am I setting the least of the commandments aside? Or what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. <laughs> that sounds like, wait a minute, because, because Paul, you know, doesn't Paul say that's none of us can measure up? We, you know, none of us can keep, none of us are right. Why would Jesus require something of us that we can't keep? So this, this issue of the law and the teaching of Jesus and in, in Paul is a very, very complicated issue. As a matter of fact, I've got shelves of books <laughs> on this very topic. So even the most brilliant scholars, they don't have all the rough edges smoothed out. But here is the way I read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and if you want to know more about it, I've written a commentary on Matthew's Gospel for the Story of God Bible Commentary, edited by Scott McKnight. And by the way, Scott has written an excellent, his volume came out before mine, he's written an excellent uh, volume, a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in that same series, Story of God Bible Commentary series published by Zondervan. So you could read more about it there because Scott reads it just like I do. We, I read it very similarly as he does, as well as other New Testament scholars. But the reason those teachings of Jesus about setting the least of the commandments aside and being perfect sounds so foreign to our ears is he is talking to Jews. He is not talking in that context to Gentiles. The law, God gave the law to Israel. The law was not given to all people. The law was never meant to be universal. And the way Paul sees it, not only is it not given to everyone, the law is not eternal. <laughs> it, there, there, it has an expiration date. It's a temporal thing. He gave it at a certain place and time, Moses. And the way Paul sees it in Galatians 3, and Jesus hints at this in the famous saying in the Sermon on the Mount, 
when he says, don't think I've come to set the law, abolish the law or prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Then he says in verse 18 of Matthew 5, I'm telling you, heaven and earth will pass away, but but not the smallest letter or stroke of the law shall pass away until it all is accomplished. And what Paul believed, and I think what Jesus is pointing to, is the fact that God gave the law to Israel. And the reason he gave the law to Israel was so they would find covenant blessing in the land. Because Moses says at the end of his speech in Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death. If you choose the law, obedience to the law, then you get life. You get the blessing of God. And what does that blessing look like? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't look like. He's not talking about so that when you die, you go to heaven. Read it. The uh, Deuteronomy 28. Read, read his farewell sermon. I said before you, life and death. And if you obey the law, if you are therefore receive covenant blessing from God, then what that means, what that looks like, that blessing of God for obedience, for living rightly, for Israel, is the land that you're entering will be productive. You'll have bumper crops, and you yourself will be healthy. Can you hear it? In other words, it, the reward is in this life, in this land, the land of Israel. And therefore, the warning of, of violating the law, breaking the law, sinning against God brings a curse. And what is the curse? Moses doesn't warn you, and if you, if you break the law, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> no. Instead, and you can't find really the idea of, of a punishment and an eternal damnation in the Old Testament. It's just not there. There are hints at this idea of being you know, judged by God, but nothing like we read in the New Testament. So what is the curse? If, if Moses says, I put for you death, well, you'll, you'll die. That means the land will not be prosperous. There'll be famine. There'll be disease. There'll be sickness. You will die. So when when Jesus is saying, God gave the law, and in his generation, they're not obeying it because they're not interpreting it right. That's why the land is not a place of blessing for them. The Romans occupy it. It's a place of disease and sickness and death. But Jesus comes to fulfill the law so that the blessing of God will come not only for Israel and the meek will inherit the land, but get this, he will therefore accomplish all that God required of Israel, and therefore he will be the light to the nations. Because Isaiah had this idea that the you know it's one thing for God to bless Israel. Because God told Abraham, that Gentile convert, you know, Abraham was not a Jew. He's a Chaldean. He's a Gentile, uncircumcised. Paul makes this point in Romans 4. So when, when God promises Abram that he'll be the father of a nation, that a nation will come from his loins, Israel, Jews. 
It wasn't just so that he would have a people descendants who would possess the land, although that's the primary purpose. There seems to be a secondary purpose. What is God trying to do through Abraham? He's trying to bless the whole world. He'd be the father of a multitude of nations. In other words, the way the Old Testament is set up, God planned to bless all Gentiles through Abraham's children. And so the question that all Jews were asking in Jesus' day, how will Gentiles be blessed? And Isaiah, you know, he envisioned, well, you know, we, if we ever start living according to the law, if we keep the covenant, Jesus even quotes Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, Isaiah believed that the way that the blessing of God will come to Gentiles, that Israel will be a light to the Gentiles, that they will so obey God, the covenant blessing will be so evident, God will show up and the, the blessing will be so dominant and obvious that all the nations will want to come and worship the God of Israel. The way Isaiah sees it, the Assyrians and the Egyptians are going to be so impressed by this blessing of God, of his people, they'll build roads to the desert just to get Jerusalem to worship the one true God of Israel. And then not only will the Gentiles come, but even the cursed, the eunuchs, those who are really, who don't even belong to the temple, God's going to welcome them because Israel finally obeyed the covenant. And God then used Israel as a blessing to all nations, a light to the Gentiles. Jeremiah said the same thing. He anticipated the day when the law would be written on the hearts of, the, of Israel. And that would mean a new creation. So for, for their day, you know, how would, how would a Jew know whether or not Israel's truly keeping the covenant? How would they know if Gentiles are seeking the God of Israel? So Jesus taught this. Paul teaches this. Here it is. How are Gentiles included in, you know, grafted into the tree of Israel? How is it that God's blessing will come to all nations through Israel? Israel needs to fulfill the covenant. And Jesus comes as that embodied Israel to fulfill the covenant. That's why he says all will be accomplished. That's why he says be perfect as my father in heaven. It's because he will indeed live out the truth of the law and the prophets. And because because of his obedience then that leads to a cross and a resurrection, then at the end of Matthew's gospel Jesus will say all authority has been given to me. It's time for the Gentiles to be brought in because the covenant blessing of God now is found in the one who made all the promises of God come true. So once you see that, once you see that Jesus in his time, he's trying to teach his listeners, he's trying to teach his contemporaries, the Jews, to recognize this law that God gave us a gift. It's grace. And the only way we're going to see the covenant blessing of God is if we keep it. 
And you've heard it said this, 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 and this, but I say, here's what God really meant. And he's convinced that if you follow him into the small gate and the narrow path, which that word narrow really means difficult or one that's pressured, which is the way of Jesus, it's the way of mercy. If you follow him, you find life. But the broad path, the broad gate and, and the wide path that lead that a lot of people find that leads to destruction, that's the path of the Pharisees and the scribes. Which is why he said you have to have a righteousness that exceeds scribes and Pharisees. See what he's doing? He knows he will make the way to God. He knows all will be accomplished. He knows he's the embodiment of every hope and promise God made to Israel. He knows he's therefore the hope of the Gentiles. He is the savior of the whole world. And the gospel writers and Paul and John in his letters and the Revelation, all of them have that same understanding of why Jesus was crucial to see the law and the prophets fulfilled and therefore the blessing of God to Abraham coming true for all. Because Jesus, of course, not only sets the standard of righteousness when it comes to a right relationship with God, he establishes, therefore, the right relationship, standard of righteousness and justice for one another. So for him, all 613 commandments, you can't set them aside. He's going to fulfill them all. And what God intended, and basically then he gives advice to his disciples, this way of his that few find, he said basically all the commandments are summed up in one. You keep one commandment, you've kept them all. You want to know what justice looks like? You want to know what God's righteousness on earth looks like? You want to know what heaven on earth looks like? The kingdom of heaven coming to earth? Here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, these are not just platitudes Jesus offered on a mountain for us to think about. Let me give you something to think about. <laughs> it wasn't a thought experiment. There's a little something you need, need to consider. For Jesus, it's life and death. It sounds just like Moses. Indeed, scholars have noticed that when Jesus, what Matthew's doing, he sees Jesus as the second Moses. You remember God promised Moses in Deuteronomy 18? I'm going to send a prophet like you, but the difference is every word he says will be my word. So Jesus, like Moses, goes to the mountain, delivers the law of the Messiah, the royal law, as James calls it, the law of, the, of Christ. And basically, as he explains, this is what God meant all along. This is how covenant blessing comes. And if he's the personification, if he's the embodiment of Israel and he fulfills what Israel could not do, and then he is the, you might say, the conduit of God's grace, of Abraham's blessing to all nations so that Gentiles get grafted in by believing in him and being in Christ, therefore, the way Paul puts it, and following him in the way of righteousness. Then that's why the New Testament has built its whole hope on the singular idea that everything Jesus said and everything he did defines what is right. 
so. That's why Paul, would, he was upset, you know, when his Gentile converts <laughs> were thinking they had to keep the law. He said, what are you doing? The law was not given to you. Gentiles can't keep the law. It wasn't even given to you. The law was given to Israel. And since Christ is the righteousness of God, but now the righteousness of God is revealed by the faithfulness of Jesus for those who believe in him, whether Jew or Gentile. That's Romans 3, 21 and following. By having faith in Christ, then whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, a male or female, a slave or free, you are trusting in the fact that he has accomplished everything. I mean, he meant it when he said, raised from the dead, all authority is given to me now. Because he fulfilled the law and the prophets. He is the embodiment of the promise. He's the hope of the whole world. So, when these Paul's Gentile converts thought they need to get circumcised, that's ridiculous. You don't have to become a Jew to be a son of Abraham. You don't. You have the faith like Abraham. You believe a promise, an uncircumcised man. And that promise is Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. And being baptized into Christ, now that is a Christian baptism. And it all happened because John the baptizer prepared the way. Jesus is the advent of the very presence of God, the fulfillment of all the promises, the Messiah who launched the kingdom of heaven on earth. And therefore, we live in the promise that what he started, he will finish. Because Jesus is not only a Jew, we believe he's the very son of God. Well, I hope that helps. I know it's hard to think that way. We can't help but read Jesus as if he was a Christian <laughs> and using Christian language. Well, Christianity owes its existence to him. As some scholars love to say, Christianity was born in the lap of Judaism. Yes, it is. It is the fulfillment of God's intentions for not only Israel, but all humanity. But the truth of the matter is, Jesus, a Jew, is the one who faithfully obeyed God. And because he's the son of God, offered a life that was pleasing to him. This is my beloved son. Died, therefore, a vicarious and efficacious death. This death, it's cursed according to the law, is now a blessing. And God raised him from the dead to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And therefore, forgiveness of sin is found in him Resurrection power is found in him, and old things pass away and everything's becoming new because Jesus reversed the curse. And the last day will prove it when all creation is raised from the dead. Well, I hope this helps. I, I know it's a lot to take in, and uh, there's a lot of studying to be done, obviously. Uh, there's maybe some books you want to look into and and see how, how other people read the significance 
of John the Baptizer and Jesus. It's a very complex issue, but I think it's really important to recognize John was not a Baptist. Jesus was not a Christian. Thanks for listening. Look forward to having other guests as we teach all of us to learn about the things we didn't know about the Bible.